listening to Nightlight. And a very happy Easter to you all. Welcome to part four of Meditations on the Easter Story, taken from J.C. Ryle's Expositions on the Gospel of Luke. Well, we ended part three with the resurrection of Jesus, and we still have a few more stories in Luke that tells what happens after his resurrection, beginning with a fascinating story that only Luke tells and you won't find recounted in the other three Gospels. That's the walk to Emmaus. And if you're following in your Bible, then we're in Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Nightlight. What a delight. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about three score furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that he have one to another as he walk and are sad? And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulchre. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulchre, and found it even so as the women had said. But him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village whither they went. And he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they knew him. And he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. The history contained in these verses is not found in any other gospel but that of Luke. Of all the eleven appearances of Christ after his resurrection, none perhaps is so interesting as the one described in this passage. Let us mark in these verses what encouragement there is to believers to speak to one another about Christ. We are told of two disciples walking together to Emmaus and talking of their master's crucifixion. And then come the remarkable words, while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Conference on spiritual subjects is a most important means of grace. As iron sharpens iron, so does exchange of thoughts with brethren sharpen a believer's soul. It brings down a special blessing on all who make a practice of it. The striking words of Malachi were meant for the church in every age. Then those who feared the Lord spoke often one to another. 
And the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, says the Lord, in that day when I make up my jewels. Malachi 3, verse 16 and 17. What do we know ourselves of spiritual conversation with other Christians? Perhaps we read our Bibles and pray in private and use public means of grace. It is all well, very well. But if we stop short here, we neglect a great privilege and have yet much to learn. We ought to consider one another to provoke to love and good works. We ought to exhort and edify one another. Hebrews 10.24 and 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Have we no time for spiritual conversation? Let us think again. The quantity of time wasted on frivolous, trifling and unprofitable talk is fearfully great. Do we find nothing to say on spiritual subjects? Do we feel tongue-tied and speechless on the things of Christ? Surely, if this is the case, there must be something wrong within. A heart right in the sight of God will generally find words. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 12:34. Let us learn a lesson from the two travelers to Emmaus. Let us speak of Jesus when we're sitting in our houses and when we're walking by the way, whenever we can find a disciple to speak to. Deuteronomy 6, 7. If we believe we're journeying to a heaven where Christ will be the central object of every mind. Let us begin to learn the manners of heaven while we are yet upon earth. So doing, we shall often have one with us whom our eyes will not see, but one who will make our hearts burn within us by blessing the conversation. Let us mark, secondly, in these verses, how weak and imperfect was the knowledge of some of our Lord's disciples. We're told that the two disciples confessed frankly that their expectations had been disappointed by the crucifixion of Christ. We had hoped, said they, that it had been he who would have redeemed Israel. A temporal redemption of the Jews by a conqueror appears to have been the redemption which they looked for. A spiritual redemption by a sacrificial death was an idea which their minds could not thoroughly take in. Ignorance like this at first sight is truly astounding. We cannot be surprised at the sharp rebuke which fell from our Lord's lips. How foolish you are and slow of heart to believe. Yet ignorance like this is deeply instructive. It shows us how little cause we have to wonder at the spiritual darkness which obscures the minds of careless Christians. Myriads around us are just as ignorant of the meaning of Christ's sufferings as these travelers to Emmaus. As long as the world stands, the cross will seem foolishness to natural man. Let us bless God that there may be true grace hidden under much intellectual ignorance. Clear and accurate knowledge is a most useful thing, but it is not absolutely needful to salvation and may even be possessed without grace. A deep sense of sin, a humble willingness to be saved in God's way, a teachable readiness to give up our own prejudices when a more excellent way is shown, these are the principal things. These things the two disciples possessed, and therefore our Lord went with them and guided them into all truth. Let us mark thirdly in these verses how full the Old Testament is of Christ. We're told that our Lord began with Moses and all the prophets and expounded in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How should we explain these words? In what way did our Lord show things concerning himself in every part of the Old Testament field? 
The answer to these questions is short and simple. Christ was the substance of every Old Testament sacrifice ordained in the law of Moses. Christ was the true deliverer and king of whom all the judges and deliverers in Jewish history were types. Christ was the coming prophet greater than Moses, whose glorious advent filled the pages of prophets. Christ was the true seed of the woman who was to bruise the serpent's head, the true seed in whom all nations were to be blessed, the true Shiloh to whom all people were to be gathered the true scapegoat, the true bronze serpent, the true lamb to which every daily offering pointed, the true high priest of whom every descendant of Aaron was a figure. These things, or something like them, we need not doubt, were some of the things which our Lord expounded on the way to Emmaus. Let it be a settled principle in our minds in reading the Bible that Christ is the central son of the whole book. So long as we keep him in view, we shall never greatly err in our search for spiritual knowledge. Once losing sight of Christ, we shall find the whole Bible dark and full of difficulty. The key of Bible knowledge is Jesus Christ. Let us mark, finally, in these verses, how much Christ loves to be entreated by his people. We are told that when the disciples drew near to Emmaus, our Lord made as though he would have gone further. He desired to see if they were weary of his conversation. But it was not so. They constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. Cases like this are not uncommon in Scripture. Our Lord sees it good for us to prove our love by withholding mercies until we ask for them. He does not always force his gifts upon us, unsought and unsolicited. He loves to draw out our desires and to compel us to exercise our spiritual affections by waiting for our prayers. He dealt so with Jacob at Peniel. Let me go, he said, for the day breaks. And then came the noble declaration from Jacob's lips, I will not let you go except you bless me. Genesis 32:26. The story of the Canaanitish mother, the story of the healing of the two blind men at Jericho, the story of the nobleman at Capernaum, the parables of the unjust judge and friend at midnight are all meant to teach the same lesson. All show that our Lord loves to be entreated and likes importunity. Let us act on this principle in all our prayers. If we know anything of praying, let us ask much and ask often and lose nothing for lack of asking. Let us not be like the Jewish king who smote three times on the ground and then stopped his hand, 2 Kings 13.18. Let us rather remember the words of David's psalm Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Psalm 81.10 It is the man who puts a holy constraint on Christ in prayer who enjoys much of Christ's manifested presence. Shining bright in the dark night, you're listening to Nightlight. Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 43. And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are ye troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and of a honeycomb. 
and he took it and did eat before them. We should observe in this passage the singularly gracious words with which our Lord introduced himself to his disciples after his resurrection. We read that he suddenly stood in the midst of them and said, Peace be unto you. This was a wonderful saying when we consider the men to whom it was addressed. It was addressed to eleven disciples who three days before had shamefully forsaken their master and fled. They had broken their promises, they had forgotten their professions of readiness to die for their faith, they had been scattered, every man to his own, and left their master to die alone. One of them even denied him three times. All of them had proved backsliders and cowards. And yet, behold the return which their master makes to his disciples. Not a word of rebuke is spoken, not a single sharp saying falls from his lips. Calmly and quietly he appears in the midst of them, and begins by speaking of peace. Peace be unto you. We see in this touching saying one more proof that the love of Christ passes knowledge. It is his glory to pass over a transgression. He delights in mercy. He is far more willing to forgive than men are to be forgiven, and far more ready to pardon than men are to be pardoned. There is in his almighty heart an infinite willingness to put away man's transgressions. Though our sins have been as scarlet, he is ever ready to make them as white as snow, to blot them out, to cast them behind his back, to bury them in the depths of the sea, and to remember them no more. All these are scriptural phrases intended to convey the same great truth. The natural man is continually stumbling at them and refusing to understand them. At this we need not wonder. Free, full, and undeserved forgiveness to the very uttermost is not the manner of man, but it is the manner of Christ. Where is the sinner, however great his sins, who need be afraid of beginning to apply to such a Saviour as this? In the hand of Jesus there is mercy enough and to spare. Where is the backslider, however far he may have fallen, who need be afraid of returning? Fury is not in Christ, Isaiah 27.4. He is willing to raise and restore the very worst. Where is the saint who ought not to love such a saviour and to pay him willingly a holy obedience? There is forgiveness with him that he may be feared. Psalm 134. Where is the professing Christian who ought not to be forgiving toward his brethren? The disciples of a saviour whose words were so full of peace ought to be peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated. Colossians 3.13 We should observe for another thing in this passage our Lord's marvelous condescension to the infirmity of his disciples. We read that when his disciples were terrified at his appearance and could not believe that it was himself, he said, Behold my hands and feet, touch me and see. Our Lord might fairly have commanded his disciples to believe that he had risen. He might justly have said, Where is your faith? Why do you not believe my resurrection when you see me with your own eyes? But he does not do so. He stoops even lower than this. He appeals to the bodily senses of the eleven. He bids them touch him with their own hands and satisfy themselves that he was a material being and not a ghost or spirit. A mighty practical lesson is involved in our Lord's dealing with the disciples, which we shall do well to remember. 
That lesson is the duty of dealing gently with weak disciples and teaching them as they are able to bear. Like our Lord, we must be forbearing and patient. Like our Lord, we must condescend to the feebleness of some men's faith and treat them as tenderly as little children in order to bring them into the right way. We must not cast off men because they do not see everything at once. We must not despise the humblest and most childish means if we can only persuade men to believe. Such dealing may require much patience. But he who cannot condescend to deal thus with the young, the ignorant, and the uneducated has not the mind of Christ. Well would it be for all believers if they would remember Paul's words more frequently. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. 1 Corinthians 9, 22. to God. You're listening to Nightlight. Luke chapter 24 verses 44 to 49. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem, and ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Let us observe firstly in these verses the gift which our Lord bestowed on his disciples immediately before he left the world. We read that he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. We must not misapprehend these words. We are not to suppose that the disciples knew nothing about the Old Testament up to this time and that the Bible is a book which no ordinary person can expect to comprehend. We are simply to understand that Jesus showed his disciples the full meaning of many passages which had hitherto been hidden from their eyes. Above all, he showed the true interpretation of many prophetical passages concerning the Messiah. We all need a like enlightenment of our understandings. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Pride and prejudice and love of the world blind our intellects and throw a veil over the eyes of our minds in the reading of the scriptures. We see the words but do not thoroughly understand them until we are taught from above. He that desires to read his Bible with profit must first ask the Lord Jesus to open the eyes of his understanding by the Holy Spirit. Human commentaries are useful in their way. The help of good and learned men is not to be despised, but there is no commentary to be compared with the teaching of Christ. A humble and prayerful spirit will find a thousand things in the Bible which the proud, self-conceited student will utterly fail to discern. Let us observe secondly in these verses the remarkable manner in which the Lord Jesus speaks of his own death on the cross. He does not speak of it as a misfortune or a thing to be lamented, but as a necessity. He says, 
the Messiah must suffer and rise again the third day. The death of Christ was necessary to our salvation. His flesh and blood offered in sacrifice on the cross were the life of the world, John 6.51. Without the death of Christ, so far as we can see, God's law could never have been satisfied. Sin could never have been pardoned. Man could never have been justified before God. And God could never have shown mercy to man. The cross of Christ was the solution of a mighty difficulty. It untied a vast knot. It enabled God to be just and yet the justifier of the ungodly. Romans 3.26 It enabled man to draw near to God with boldness and to feel that though a sinner, he might have hope. Christ, by suffering as a substitute in our stead, the just for the unjust, has made a way by which we can draw near to God. We may freely acknowledge that in ourselves we are guilty and deserve death, but we may boldly plead that one has died for us, and that for his sake, believing on him, we claim life and acquittal. Let us ever glory in the cross of Christ. Let us regard it as the source of all our hopes and the foundation of all our peace. Ignorance and unbelief may see nothing in the sufferings of Calvary but the cruel martyrdom of an innocent person. Faith will look far deeper. Faith will see in the death of Jesus the payment of man's enormous debt to God and the complete salvation of all who believe. Let us observe thirdly in these verses what were the first truths which the Lord Jesus bade his disciples preach after he left the world. We read that repentance and forgiveness of sins were to be preached in his name among all nations. Repentance and forgiveness of sins are the first things which ought to be pressed on the attention of every man, woman and child throughout the world. All ought to be told the necessity of repentance. All are by nature desperately wicked. Without repentance and conversion, none can enter the kingdom of God. All ought to be told God's readiness to forgive everyone who believes on Christ. All are by nature guilty and condemned, but anyone may obtain faith in Jesus, free, full, and immediate pardon. All, not least, ought to be continually reminded that repentance and forgiveness of sins are inseparably linked together. Not that our repentance can purchase our pardon. Pardon is the free gift of God to the believer in Christ. But still it remains true that an impenitent man is an unforgiven man. He that desires to be a true Christian must be experimentally acquainted with repentance and remission of sins. These are the principal things in saving religion. To belong to a pure church and hear the gospel and receive the sacraments are great privileges. But are we converted? Are we justified? If not, we are dead before God. Happy is that Christian who keeps these two points continually before his eyes. Repentance and forgiveness are not mere elementary truths and milk for babes. The highest standard of sanctity is nothing more than a continual growth in practical knowledge of these two points. The brightest saint is the man who has the most heart-searching sense of his own sinfulness and the liveliest sense of his own complete acceptance in Christ. Let us observe fourthly what was the first place at which the disciples were to begin preaching. They were to begin at Jerusalem. 
This is a striking fact and one full of instruction. It teaches us that none are to be reckoned too wicked for salvation to be offered to them, and that no degree of spiritual disease is beyond the reach of the gospel remedy. Jerusalem was the wickedest city on earth when our Lord left the world. It was a city which had stoned the prophets and killed those whom God sent to call it to repentance. It was a city full of pride, unbelief, self-righteousness, and desperate hardness of heart. It was a city which had just crowned all its transgressions by crucifying the Lord of glory. And yet, Jerusalem was the place at which the first proclamation of repentance and pardon was to be made. The command of Christ was plain. Begin at Jerusalem. We see in these wondrous words the length and breadth and depth and height of Christ's compassion towards sinners. We must never despair of anyone being saved, however bad and profligate he may have been. We must open the door of repentance to the chief of sinners. We must not be afraid to invite the worst of men to repent, believe, and live. It is the glory of our great physician that he can heal incurable cases. The things that seem impossible to men are possible with Christ. Let us observe lastly the peculiar position which believers and especially ministers are meant to occupy in this world. Our Lord defines it in one expressive word. He says, you are witnesses. If we are true disciples of Christ, we must bear a continual testimony in the midst of an evil world. We must testify to the truth of our Master's gospel, the graciousness of our Master's heart, the happiness of our Master's service, the excellence of our Master's rules of life, and the enormous danger and wickedness of the ways of the world. Such testimony will doubtless bring down upon us the displeasure of man. The world will hate us, as it did our Master, because we testify of it that its works are evil. John 7, 7. Such testimony will doubtless be believed by few comparatively and will be thought by many offensive and extreme. But the duty of a witness is to bear his testimony whether he's believed or not. If we bear a faithful testimony, we have done our duty. Although like Noah and Elijah and Jeremiah, we stand almost alone. What do we know? of this witnessing character? What kind of testimony do we bear? What evidence do we give that we're disciples of a crucified Savior and like him are not of the world? John 17:14. What marks do we show of belonging to him who said, I came that I should bear witness unto the truth? John 18:37. Happy is he who can give a satisfactory answer to these questions and whose life declares plainly that he seeks a country. Hebrews 11, 14. Inspiring you to love and serve Jesus more. You're listening to Night Light. Luke chapter 24, verses 50 through 53. And he led them out as far as to Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen.
These verses are the winding up of Luke's history of our Lord's ministry. They form a suitable conclusion to a gospel which in touching tenderness and full exhibition of Christ's grace stands first among the four records of the things which Jesus did and taught. Acts 1.1 Let us notice firstly in this passage the remarkable manner in which our Lord left his disciples. We read that he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them. In one word, he left them when in the very act of blessing. We cannot doubt for a moment that there was a meaning in this circumstance. It was intended to remind the disciples of all that Jesus had brought with him when he came into the world. It was intended to assure them of all of what he would yet do after he left the world. He came on earth to bless and not to curse, and blessing he departed. He came in love and not in anger, and in love he went away. He came not as a condemning judge, but as a compassionate friend, and as a friend he returned to his father. He had been a savior, full of blessings to his little flock while he had been with them. He would be a savior full of blessings to them, he would have them know, even after he was taken away. Forever, let our souls lean on the gracious heart of Christ if we know anything of true religion. We shall never find a heart more tender, more loving, more patient, more compassionate, and more kind. To talk of the Virgin Mary as being more compassionate than Christ is a proof of miserable ignorance. To flee to the saints for comfort when we may flee to Christ is an act of mingled stupidity and blasphemy and a robbery of Christ's crown. Gracious was our Lord Jesus while he lived among his weak disciples, gracious in the very season of his agony on the cross, gracious when he rose again and gathered his scattered sheep around him, gracious in the manner of his departure from this world. It was a departure in the very act of blessing. Gracious, we may be assured he is at the right hand of God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, a Savior ever ready to bless, abounding in blessings. Let us notice secondly in this passage the place to which our Lord went when he left the world. We read that he was carried up into heaven. The full meaning of these words we cannot of course comprehend. It would be easy to ask questions about the exact residence of Christ's glorified body which the wisest theologian could never answer. We must not waste our time in unedifying speculations or intrude into things unseen, Colossians 2.18. Let it suffice us to know that our Lord Jesus Christ is gone into the presence of God on behalf of all who believe on him as a forerunner and a high priest, Hebrews 6.20, John 14.2. As a forerunner, Jesus has gone into heaven to prepare a place for all his members. Our great head has taken possession of a glorious inheritance in behalf of his mystical body and holds it as an elder brother and trustee until the day comes when his body shall be perfected. As a high priest, Jesus has gone into heaven to intercede for all who believe on him. There, in the Holy of Holies, he presents on their behalf the merit of his own sacrifice and obtains for them daily supplies of mercy and grace. The grand secret of the perseverance of saints is Christ's appearance for them in heaven. They have an everlasting advocate with the Father, and therefore they are never 
cast away. Hebrews 9.24, 1 John 2.1 A day will come when Jesus shall return from heaven in like manner as he went. He will not always abide within the Holy of Holies. He will come forth like the Jewish high priest to bless the people, to gather his saints together. Leviticus 9.23, Acts 3.21 For that day let us wait and long and pray. Christ dying on the cross for sinners. Christ living in heaven to intercede. Christ coming again in glory are three great objects which ought to stand out prominently before the eyes of every true Christian. Let us notice lastly in this passage the feelings of our Lord's disciples when he finally left them and was carried up into heaven. We read that they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. How should we account for these joyful feelings? How should we explain the singular fact that this little company of weak disciples left for the first time like orphans in the midst of an angry world was not cast down but was full of joy? The answer to these questions is short and simple. The disciples rejoiced because now, for the first time, they saw all things clearly about their master. The veil was removed from their eyes. The darkness had at length passed away. The meaning of Christ's humiliation and low estate, the meaning of his mysterious agony and cross and passion, the meaning of his being Messiah and yet a sufferer, the meaning of his being crucified and yet being Son of God. All, all was at length unraveled and made plain. They saw it all. They understood it all. Their doubts were removed. Their stumbling blocks were taken away. Now, at last, they possessed clear knowledge. And possessing clear knowledge felt unmingled joy. Let it be a settled principle with us that the little degree of joy which many believers feel arises often from lack of knowledge. Weak faith and inconsistent practice are doubtless two great reasons why many of God's children enjoy so little peace. But it may well be suspected that dim and indistinct views of the gospel are the true cause of many a believer's discomfort. When the Lord Jesus is not clearly known and understood, it must needs follow that there is little joy in the Lord. Let us leave the Gospel of Luke with a settled purpose of heart to seek more spiritual knowledge every year we live. Let us search the Scriptures more deeply and pray over them more heartily. Too many believers only scratch the surface of Scripture and know nothing of digging down into its hidden treasures. Let the Word dwell in us more richly. Let us read our Bibles more diligently. So doing, we shall taste more of joy and peace in believing and shall know what it is to be continually praising and blessing God. to an international edition of Nightlight, shining God's love light to the world. Well, that brings us to the end of this special four-part series of Nightlight Meditations on the Easter Story, taken from J.C. Ryle's exposition on the Gospel of Luke. I hope you enjoyed listening to them as much as I enjoyed reading them. I certainly learned a lot about the Easter story that I didn't know before, and J.C. Ryle has definitely helped me understand a lot more clearly about the passion of Christ and given me a much deeper appreciation 
of his sacrifice for us. J.C. Ryle was born in 1816. He died in 1900. He was an evangelical Anglican clergyman, the first bishop of Liverpool, and he was famous for his powerful preaching, his many tracts, I believe he wrote over 500 of them, and his many books, which include his seven volumes of expositions on the four Gospels. I came across him sort of accidentally, although of course I know it was the Lord who led me to him. I'd never actually heard of J.C. Ryle before. Charles Spurgeon was about the only Christian writer I knew from that era. But I started a couple of years ago volunteering to read devotionals uh, from various classic Christian writers which had been researched and published on Grace Gems website. And I was amazed at the quantity and quality of many other writers of devotionals who lived particularly in the 19th century. So I decided to Google them to find out more about them. J.C. Ryle happened to be the first I Googled and I read about him in Wikipedia where they had links to his expositions on the four Gospels. And I made them part of my devotions and became hooked. And I never had time to research any of the other guys that I've been recording. Anyway, I think you'll agree that his expositions and meditations on the Gospels are excellent. And I'm very happy to help bring them to light so they can be appreciated in our present generation because the wisdom and insights and truths that he uncovers in the Gospels are timeless and, of course, just as applicable to us today as they were back then when he wrote them. So if you'd like to study the Gospels with the help of J.C. Ryle, uh, you can also just Google him. J.C. Ryle, that's Ryle, you spell R-Y-L-E. Well, that's it for me for now. And you'll be happy to know that we've lots of great nightlight shows in the works interviews with a lot of very interesting people all with unique stories to tell well it looks like we still have ooh, some time left maybe about 12 minutes so we're going to go out with the easter story told in song and this is taken from the bible album recorded by les enfants de dieu that's the children of god uh, in france they were very famous in france way back in 19 19- 76 and they recorded this album both in French and English gosh that was 40 years ago but the songs are still great songs happy Easter God bless you bye bye in the darkest hour there's a ray of sunlight streaming from the heart of love Want to live Live for you My life ain't worth giving If it's not for you Oh Father Thy will be done Thy will be done Here I am Your only son Thy will to be done As a lamb to its slaughter I have come Those you have given me I pray will be Held in your everlasting arms For eternity
that's been said must be done oh, Father
Tell us. 